The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. I think you're probably all familiar with the term sour grapes, right? Aesop's fables, the story of the little fox who spies a cluster of grapes high overhead that he, she, it really wants. Can't reach it, walks away rationalizing to itself, and eh, didn't want it anyway. By the way, if you Google the term sour grapes and Aesop's, uh, most of the often you'll get uh, something that looks like it was wood carved 300 years ago or something that was written by or drawn by a, a, a three-year-old or four three-year-old. This is the one that I love the best, by the way. I don't know if you can see. Shit. <laughs> kind of gets that frustration that leads to that place. Oh, I didn't want it anyway. So I thought about that term sour grapes, was reminded of it when I read recently a quote from a person named Satya Nadella, who is the chief executive officer of Microsoft company I think we all know about. Now what Mr. Nadella said is this, the true scarce commodity of the near future, he said, will be human attention. Ah, oh, wow, the CEO of Microsoft being this insightful guru of what we're going to lack in human qualities. Now, I'm not saying he's wrong. What I'm saying is, is that in this era in which Microsoft has been outpaced by Facebook, by Google, by Apple, in which they're no longer the biggest, most high-priced, most influential software company, social media company, what I hear there is... But we wanted to be the company that would ruin the American and international capacity for paying attention to each other. Shit. <laughs> By the way, I don't blame our devices, but sometimes they certainly don't help, right? So as we bring, as I bring this message series being here to a close this morning... What I wanted to sum up with is that this is what being here is really all about. It is about paying attention. It is about occupying the ground that we stand upon in our lives, where we are, how we are, as we are. To sum it up a different way, using the great old soul song by Al Green, being here is all about love and happiness. Our capacity for love and happiness which is entirely dependent upon our willingness to be here. So there's an influential study, if you know such things like this. I'm kind of an amateur, total rank amateur, but I pay attention to this stuff. In uh, attentional and awareness studies by a guy named Daniel Gilbert, who you may or may not have heard of. I think he was in an ad for, I don't know, some finance company. He's a psychologist at Harvard. He studies the psychology of happiness. This study is called simply... A wandering mind is an unhappy mind. Now, ironically, this study was conducted by people on their smartphones. <laughs> what it did over and over and over again was have people log for hours and hours as they went through their daily lives when their minds wandered and then a whole bunch of diagnostic tests as well too about the state of their happiness, the state of their well-being. And they found a meaningful connection between people's wandering minds and their unhappiness in their lives. And as we know, this isn't just a matter of personal disconnection. 
personal unhappiness. It also leads to so much of our lives of relational unhappiness, the ways in which we miss each other, the ways in which we don't see each other, the source of so much of our personal misery, this inattention. And, you know, if we just open our eyes and look around us, we'll see uh, examples of this all the time. We don't need to take a look at a Harvard study. This is where, by the way, this message series began. In early December, as kind of the holiday season was kind of gearing itself up, and it was my day off, it was a Monday, and I was at Ikea online, buying a, a small thing, a small gift. And so, like I said, this was at the beginning of holiday season, it was a Monday. So um, it was crowded, but not like, oh my God, I'm never going to get off of this line, this is ninth circle of hell crowded. Not that bad. But I was maybe the sixth person in line, and it took me a while to get through. And what I noticed is that every other person in front of me in this line, as they went through, was paying absolutely no attention to the cashier. One person was, it almost is like it was intentional, got on a call the minute they got up to pay for their order and got off the call the minute they were done with their order as if they wanted any excuse whatsoever not to have to interact with this cashier. Person after person after person paid no human attention to the person who was ringing up their order. The person right in front of me was um, an older gentleman, a white guy. And I want to be clear about this in terms of what it may or may not have been. See, the, the cashier was a younger African-American man. And when the order was rung up, the older man, and I got to do this because I still don't have bifocals, looked at his sales receipt and asked to see what was listed on the computer and looked item by item to make sure everything was rung up correctly and he did this with a stern look of total and complete distrust now i do know something and this is borne out by studies and all kinds of experiments of the ways in which white lives don't see black lives and sometimes this has terrible consequences i don't know if that's the story i mean it could be just as likely by the way that this older gentleman he was totally wiped out in the great recession that maybe he lost his home and that every penny he spends he has to account for now and that's why he was so focused i don't know the story what i do know is what i witnessed the cumulative inattention over and over and over again between human beings and so when I got to pay for my order, I set a simple intention myself. I was going to try and make some kind of connection with this guy. I smiled at him. I, I asked how his day was going. I said, yeah, you know, this holiday season's gearing up. And we did this kind of chit-chat back and forth. And he seemed to, yes, kind of want to move me along the line. And at the same time, <laughs> also enjoyed this connection. Now, at one point, if you've been in Ikea, you might know that... Um, their uh, price scanners, the wands that they use when they check you out, are attached to these coils. And in one hand, he was holding the wand, uh, barcoding in the thing I had bought, which was glass and somewhat fragile. And I guess he pulled the wand too far away from uh, where it was stationed on its coil, and it snapped back and clanged off of like five different things and made this huge racket. And he looked at me, and I looked at him. And I said, thank you for letting go with that hand and not the hand with the fragile glass in it. <laughs> and we laughed. And it was a moment of 
connection. This is no great huge thing, and this is not a me as hero story. It is merely a reminder in my own life, and perhaps for yours as well too, that we dehumanize each other first by our absence from each other, even when we are physically present with each other. And that attention, close, clear, doesn't even have to be that deeply compassionate attention, can open up all kinds of space for really showing that another person matters and that we do as well too. Sustainable love and sustainable happiness is always, always built on reality. Not that we can't be imaginative with it, not that we can't be creative, but no real love and happiness is ever built on a fantasy. Enchantment is a matter, not a flying away, but a paying attention to what is here, what is near and through that hereness and that nearness through what can be dear to us as well in a story that for me really brings home the song that we just sang and yes I love the fact that it was written not by an ex-Catholic but by a Catholic teacher it's written by Richard Rohr one of my favorite teachers He tells a story about uh, an Irish missionary, Irish Catholic priest missionary who goes uh, to uh, Kenya and meets with a group of leaders from within the Maasai people. And he's trying to convert them. The story was uh, about 100 years ago or so. And uh, the missionary is teaching on the nature of the sacraments. And the priest says a sacrament is any physical encounter or symbol or event in which we experience grace and experience the holy. And in this conversation, the Maasai people okay yeah we we, we get that we get what what these sacraments are about and then they were very sad and very disturbed to learn that there are only seven of them and a messiah elder raised his hand and said but we would have thought father that there would have been at least seven thousand such moments not seven This is the quality of being here that is about the holy now, which is any moment if we are really awake. The problem comes in our religion, in our economy, the way we structure things, when we are always on our way somewhere else. When we are always on our way to another place, and if we are, by definition, we cannot be in the holy now. We will not be connected. We will be elsewhere. I mean, I do it just as much as everyone else. We need to. It's a part of leadership. It's a part of life. It's a part of parenting. It's part of being a kid. It's a part of being a son, daughter, parent, child, whatever. It's part of just being alive. We need to learn from the past and we need to plan for the future. And the challenge becomes, can we think about the past or think about the future without setting the impossible trap for ourselves of having to live there? Because so many of us, if we're honest, will see that we have set up shop in almost anywhere else but here. And setting up shop here is the only place we can really live. For some, this is a real and understandable trap. This is a woman named Sonia Valab. That's Sonia, and that's her husband, Eric. Now, about, I believe it was five years ago. I don't know if you've seen this story. It's been passed around on social media recently a good deal. 
But five years ago, uh, Sonia, who at that point was a lawyer and Eric uh, was a computer scientist, uh, about five years ago, Sonia got some really disturbing news. Her mom, who had been healthy for almost all of her life, around the age 50, her mother started to not be able to sleep. Night after night after night after night, not to be able to sleep. And then she started to show signs of dementia. And eventually she lost her mind entirely. And within a year, her mother was dead. It turns out, and I didn't know that this thing existed, and it sounds like the stuff of which nightmares are made come true, that there is a syndrome, a disease known as fatal familial insomnia. And it is passed on genetically. And so Sonia had to face the near impossible choice. Do I take the genetic test that will tell me if I have the gene that predicts by more than 50% whether I will come down with this disease or not? And after talking it through with her husband, she elected, yes, I will get the genetic test. And yes, it came back positive. Which means that it is very likely for this as yet incurable disease that around the age of 50, Sonia will not be able to sleep, that we, she will start to suffer from dementia, and she will die. Now just let that sink in for a second. Just I know the story, and just sharing the story again, the, the panic, the fear, the sense of losing. I can feel it in my own body right now. And so Sonia, of course, felt that herself after getting the results. She said she found a way to be able to live with her diagnosis. And it's something she uses every day, and these are her words exactly. Here is this day, she tells herself, neither today nor tomorrow nor the wet next week is it likely that this will happen to me. Here is the day in my life. This allows her to get through and to live the life that she is called to instead of setting up camp in the time to come. And by the way, lest you think that she's totally at peace with it and hey, come what may, come what may, uh, she and her husband are both brilliant, by the way, uh, both quit their jobs, went back to school, and now are research scientists working on a cure for fatal familial insomnia. We can plan for the future without living there by saying our own versions of here is this day. What I think Sonia demonstrates is a wonderful saying that I heard a number of years ago that came back to me recently. And it's from the mystical branch, the mystical school of Islam, Sufism, that says a Sufi is a child of the present moment. A Sufi is a child of the present moment. And you can hear in Sonia's story that there's nothing woo about that. There's nothing mystical or mystifying about that. It makes all the difference right now in our lives to make what might seem impossible to live with possible somehow. And to bring a dose and an understanding of sanity to the kinds of things that we think might drive us insane. Might make the terrible somehow manageable. And on the positive side too. It makes the scarce abundant, and it makes the ordinary praiseworthy. If we are able to say to ourselves, 
here is this day in my life. So many of us, myself included, experience the inner fractures by fracturing ourselves from the present moment. By separating ourselves from life. There's a poet named Mark Nepo that some of you know about. Uh, gained a bunch of notice a number of years ago when Oprah put him on his Super Soul Sunday. And he's a wonderful writer, deeply insightful. And he tells this little story. It's not even a story. It's more like a parable that's simply called The Cyclist. And it goes like this. The cyclist had been preparing for years for this race. The cyclist approached this race with the muscles in his legs, sheaths of almost steel, in peak physical condition. He woke up the morning of this great race and felt that an amazing blessing was about to befall him. When they were at the starting gate for the race, they felt like they were horses ready to move in. He described to one of his fellow cyclists there before the race started, this is the closest thing I know to flying. And he shot out of the gate, and already he was amongst the leaders. And about a quarter of the way through, he separated from the pack and became the leader of the race. At one point, the race wound down next to some marshlands, some wetlands. And the cyclist saw this great big blue heron lift up immediately from almost out of nowhere from within the marshland and spread its wide wings. And eventually the cyclist could feel that he was shadowed by the great wide wings of the great blue heron. And the cyclist stopped. And all the other racers passed him by. And he just watched the great blue heron move off into the great blue sky. In years to come, people would ask the cyclist, What cost you the race? Why'd you lose? What cost you the race? And sometimes he would answer when he felt like giving an answer. I didn't lose the race. I left the race. Now, I have nothing against competition. I have nothing against racing or challenging or anything like that. We do a 5K here every year at Wellsprings. It's awesome. It raises tremendous money. That's not what the story is about. This story, hopefully, and I offer it in this intention, is that we will pay attention to all of the races and the paces that we put ourselves through that end up separating ourselves compulsively from our lives, in which we might recognize how our wandering minds lead us down the paths to unhappiness. And ultimately also lead us, many of us, myself included, very much in my past, less so now, to making unwise, unskillful, unkind choices. This wandering mind, my friends, costs us. Costs us dearly.
Sometimes we don't even recognize this until we get to the end of our lives. Some of you might remember, if you were around, that a number of years ago, uh, Reverend Lee and I did this as a message series, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. By the way, this was not a scientific study. Um, and I've been around a lot of dying people, and yes, this totally makes sense. I, number one, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the lives others expected of me. Number two, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Number five, I wish that I'd let myself be happier. All of these, if you scratch the surface of them, are problems with presence. Of not allowing ourselves to be present as we walk through this life. It has been my experience that the dying are by far my best teachers. Because they have seen the outer edge of all of this that is also us. And if we're smart, and not just smart, but wise, we'll listen to them. Because they can help us find ourselves in the map right now. Not when we get to the end of this particular map. We might be able to say to ourselves these wonderful words. And by the way, we don't have to say them once and done. We say them every day if we want to. And I encourage you to start doing this if you want to set your day with an intention for a presence practice to be here. These wonderful words from the teacher that we quote every single week here at Wellsprings. Waking up this morning, I smile. 24 brand new hours are before me. I vow to live fully in each moment and to look at all beings with the eyes of compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh, I have already failed both of these tests today. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. It's still here. The question. Starting most with myself. Can I look at my own life with eyes of compassion? Well, actually right now I can. Doesn't mean anything for the next moment. <laughs> but right now, I can. This is being here. To ask ourselves and to set an intention for this day in our lives by noticing the life that is in our day, whatever this day is for you. About seven weeks ago, I started this message series with a little opportunity for some communal prayer together. And that first message, entitled Describing Before Prescribing, of just describing what we were working with. And I asked us to pray together, starting with these words, just aloud, seated, briefly, because there's a bunch of people here. I am working with, and then fill in the blank. I'd like to conclude this message series with that same invitation to communal prayer with these words. Here is this day in my life. Maybe happiness, maybe joy, maybe sadness, maybe anger, maybe confusion, maybe uncertainty, maybe loss, maybe love. What is here in this day for you right now? This is the practice, my friends. May we be here together. Amen. May you live in blessing. Please join your heart with mine in prayer. Timeless spirit able to be known in the air, the water, 
the eyesight of another, our own eyesight. Touch, taste, feel. Spirit that above all else is holy now, not holy past or holy then, but holy now. May we be able to claim for ourselves this ground underneath our feet that we all occupy. This air in our lungs that belongs to us all. This love in our hearts that unites us with all. And so this day, I say for myself, here in this day in my life, here in this day in my life, I have such gratitude that I am able to minister in a community that asks me to be present. Here in this day in my life, I have gratitude. I open this space for you to use these words and to speak of what is here in this day in your life. Please, if you are moved, the Spirit moves you. Share the contents of this moment of your heart. What is here? Love. Spoken and unspoken. Here are our lives. Just as the potter works with the clay. May we work with these raw materials. And build something of beauty and belovedness. With this life as it is. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.